This is gonna be the best day ever. This is gonna be the best day ever. Wake up. Top of the morning. The bacon is crispy. The coffee is pouring. My meditation is peeling an orange. The bank says I'm already scoring. I got a parking spot right outside. Step into my brand new ride. All we ever get is green lights and blue skies. This is gonna be the best day ever. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here at the Medina East Campus of Grace. And like Steve just mentioned, if it's your first time here at Grace or your first time back in a while, welcome. Super glad you're able to be here. And of course, if you're joining us on live stream right now, a very special welcome to you. Also, thanks for being with us. In fact, uh, maybe can we just do this? Everyone's in the room on the count of three. Can we just say, hi, live stream? You guys want to do it? Let's do it. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Hi, live stream. Love you guys. And, uh, but thanks for doing that. And we're super glad you guys are able to be with us. So if it is your first week here, you're actually catching us in week two of a series that we are in that's called Happy. And as you can probably tell, uh, the topic that we're, we're addressing is, uh, is happiness. It's what we're talking about. And um, if you're just joining us, you might be asking the question, um, so why are we doing this? Why are we doing this series? What's it all about? Uh, why are we talking about happiness? And maybe why are we talking about it now? What kind of led you to do this series? And uh, there's actually a number of different reasons why we're doing this series, but I'll just tell you that there's two big reasons that we thought that this was the right time to do this series. And one is actually kind of obvious, and the second one is not so obvious. And so we talked about this a little bit last week, but we said, here's the obvious reason. The obvious reason is because, well, this is just a really relevant topic. Um, we, I think it's true, all of us want to be happy people. And I think that's always been true throughout the history of humanity. Happiness and fulfillment has been one of the great searches that has confounded humankind. Uh, however, what we said last week is this, is we said that maybe now more than ever in our culture, there is an increased desire and there is a, an increased interest in the pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. Last week, we looked at some really staggering statistics and we said that psychologists and anthropologists would say that we are living in the midst of something that is called the happiness movement. And so we said in the past 15 or 20 years, that there has been a staggering amount of resources, of classes, of seminars, and books that have been released that have been talking about how do we become happier, how do we become more fulfilled people. And so we said the interesting thing is that while we live in the midst of the happiness movement over the past 15 to 20 years, in that same period of time, we have grown increasingly less happy as a culture. So we looked at another set of statistics that have basically said that we live in a time where we are more anxious and more depressed and more sad than we have ever been. And so basically what we said is it's very interesting that even though we're pursuing happiness like we never have before, we are more hungry to be happy than we ever have seen before. It's, and, and we said that maybe it's possible that we are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Maybe we're pursuing fulfillment the wrong way. And so that actually caused us to say, you know, maybe we need to go back and we, look to, we need to look to see what Jesus said about the pursuit of fulfillment, the pursuit of happiness. So that's the first reason. That's the obvious one. Here's the second reason that we're talking about this, the less obvious. We said this last week. We said one of the reasons that we're talking about happiness is because here at Grace Church, we actually believe that Jesus Christ historic, historically, literally, and bodily rose from the dead. And so I know that some of you are investigating Jesus and you're still trying to piece it all together. And maybe you're still not quite sure what you believe about all that. And if that's you, by the way, we're so thankful that you'd let us be part of that investigation. 
But for those of us who are Christ followers, our faith is actually founded uh, not on a set of religious beliefs. Our faith is not founded uh, simply on a set of doctrine. Our faith is actually founded first and foremost on a historical event, something we believe that happened in space and time and history, that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago for Easter, here's what we said. We said, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if he didn't, we said then Jesus Christ makes absolutely no sense at all. He makes no sense. Uh, the claims that he said about himself don't add up. The teaching that he gave us is all a sham because it led, for, it led to him, it led to death. And we said that everything that Jesus said about everything should be discounted. And because if, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, if that means that he's a sham, then consequently following him is also a sham. But here's what we said. We said, for those of us who follow Jesus, we believe that he actually did raise from the dead. And what does it mean if Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, that means a whole lot. That validates and it authenticates everything that Jesus said about himself, about his claims. That validates and it authenticates everything that he taught about life, about God, about the afterlife, and even about the vision for life and happiness. And so that's what's led us to this series. Because in this series, what we're doing is we're actually looking at Jesus's most famous teaching that he gave in the Bible. We're looking at his most famous sermon. It is the longest and earliest recorded sermon that we have from Jesus. Commentators would say that this sermon that we're looking at is the summation of everything that Jesus taught. And it gives us his vision for what does it mean to experience fulfillment and what does it mean to be a human on this planet? And so Jesus gives us that. And the sermon we're looking at is the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you might be familiar with that. And so I wanna invite you, if you got your Bible, why don't you return with me to the passage that we started looking at last week. We're gonna get to Matthew chapter five, okay? So if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab that, open that up. If you uh, did not bring a Bible or you don't have a device with a Bible app on it, feel free to use one of the Bibles under the chairs if you're in the room. Uh, page 785 is where you're gonna find that. And then, of course, I just wanna mention, uh, like we say all the time, if you don't own a Bible, man, we'd love for you just to have one. You can just take one home with you. You can make that a gift. Okay, so Matthew 5 is where we're gonna go. Now, here's what we said. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. It's what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest and earliest recorded sermon. And what's fascinating is, is the first 10 verses where Jesus begins this sermon it actually starts with this passage that we're looking at in this series. It's a passage that is sometimes called the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And we said the Beatitudes, if you're not familiar with that, it actually comes from a Latin word, which means blessed. And here's what we said. When Jesus begins his most famous sermon ever, it's very interesting. Jesus does not start with a list of laws. He does not start with a code of ethics. But instead, Jesus begins his most famous sermon with this idea of happiness, of happiness. In fact, we said the Greek word that's used, in fact, if you have Matthew chapter five in front of you, you might even just glance down, you'll notice the first 10 verses over and over again, Jesus says this word. He says, blessed, 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 blessed. And he gives a vision for who is the person who is blessed. He says a really interesting word. In the Greek language, the, 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 the Greek word is makarios. And if you were here last week, we talked about that. We said it can be translated blessed, but really it carries the idea of happiness. And more than that, we said this is Jesus is actually talking about the deepest form of happiness that humans can experience. That's what he's talking about here. And he's going to say that this, this word blessed in, in the original language, it carries the idea of possessing God's favor. In other words, this is the kind of person who God is for, and this is the, the kind of person that God is with. It also carries with it the idea of a deep sense of well-being. 
So this is more than just circumstantial happiness that like things are going good and so I'm happy, but then when things are going bad, I'm not happy. No, this is, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are life. Like it is a deep sense of well-being. And it also refers to an enduring fulfillment. So this isn't like a momentary kind of like flickering kind of happiness. This is something that stays with you. And so Jesus is gonna give us a picture of the blessed life, of where true fulfillment and happiness is really found. And last week we said this, we said the vision that Jesus gives us, the pathway to blessing is absolutely paradoxical. It is completely counterintuitive to everything that our culture tells us. And so last week we started talking about this. And and by the way, everything I've said up to this point is a recap. And so if you missed last week, last week we actually just uh, did an introduction on these 10 verses. I would encourage you if you missed last week's talk to go back and listen to that. You can watch that on our podcast, our app, on our website. I think that might be helpful because we laid out some pretty important observations that help us make sense of what Jesus says. But today what we're gonna do as we start to dig in this is we're just gonna look at the first three, the first three Beatitudes. That's as far as we're going to get today, and then we'll pick up with the rest of them next week. All right, so let's look at it together. Uh, Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. All right, so he's going to start to teach them. This is the sermon that he's going to give for the next three chapters, and what does he start with? Well, he begins his sermon with this word, blessed, makarios, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, Makarios, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, happy, Makarios are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All right, so these are the three that we're going to spend our whole time today just thinking about and trying to make sense of. What does Jesus mean when he says that the pathway to fulfillment, the pathway to happiness, involves these things? That you have to be poor in spirit, you have to mourn, and you have to be meek. Okay, now before we start picking these apart, What I want to tell you, I think this is so interesting. Uh, One of the things I learned as I was studying through the Beatitudes is that um, sometimes we can read the Beatitudes, if you've you've never read them before, sometimes we can read them and it can just seem like it's a bunch of random things that Jesus said. Like there's no order to it. There's no logic behind it. Jesus just kind of threw them out there. But what I want you to see and what commentators point out that I think is so important is that these are not unrelated to each other. But there is a a vital and deep connection, and there also is a progress in these. In other words, the Beatitudes, as you look at them, they build on each other. And there's a sequence and there's an order to them. And so it's almost like you can't understand one without understanding how it's attached to the previous one. All right, so I want you to see that. In fact, today I want you to notice these three things that he says, and the things after, which we'll talk about next week, they are deeply connected to what Jesus is talking about, about the pathway to fulfillment and the pathway to happiness. All right, so keeping that in mind, the first thing that Jesus says is he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, remember what I just said. This is not just first in sequence. In other words, Jesus didn't just say this one first. This one is actually the key. I believe this. This one right here is the key to unlocking everything else that follows after this. In fact, I would even say it this way. You cannot, I think what Jesus is going to tell us is you cannot have, you cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot enter into a relationship with God. You cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven without first having the prerequisite of being poor in spirit. Everything that follows after this is built off of this right here. In fact, I might even go so far to say this. I don't think you can understand the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think you can understand it at all without first understanding this. 
But the entry point is that we are to be poor in spirit. So because this one is so important, I actually want to spend a little bit more time on this one than the other two. All right. So what does it mean then when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit? What is he talking about? All right. Well, maybe I can start here. Let's talk about what he doesn't mean. All right. That's that's sometimes is clarifying. So what doesn't Jesus mean? All right, well, first off, he's not talking about physical poverty, all right, material or physical poverty. Some people would read this and they would say, oh, so Jesus, he hates the rich and he loves the poor. He hates people who have a lot of material resources and he loves people who don't. And that's not what this is saying at all. So you'll notice he doesn't say just blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in what? Say it with me. Spirit. Okay, so he's obviously talking about something that's spiritual here, right? So the other thing this doesn't mean, he's not talking about self-loathing. So some people, when they read poor in spirit, they think that means that you have to be someone who's just down on yourself all the time, just someone who is full of self-hatred and self-loathing. That's not it. And uh, the reason I know that is because of what the rest of the Bible teaches. I love the way one commentator, a guy by the name of Kent Hughes, said it. He clarified it this way. He said, poverty of spirit is not the conviction that one is of no value whatsoever. It does not mean the absence of self, self-worth, or as one theologian put it, it is not ontological insignificance. It doesn't require that we believe ourselves to be zeros. Such an attitude is simply not scriptural, for Christ's death on our behalf teaches us that we are of great value. So this isn't self-hatred. The Bible doesn't say we should hate ourselves, for sure. In fact, the Bible's gonna tell us that each and every single one of us, every single human being on planet Earth, is created in the image of God and is of immense value. And the Bible's gonna tell us that we are so dearly loved by God that he sent his son to die for us. That's how valuable we are to God. So what does it mean then when it says that we're to be poor in spirit? What does Jesus mean when he says this? Well, I think what Jesus is doing here is I think that he's actually trying to help us get an accurate picture, an accurate evaluation of our true spiritual condition before God. I think that's what he's trying to show us. And what is our true spiritual condition before God? Every single one of us, what is our true spiritual condition? And I think Jesus is gonna say it's this. You are, you are in poverty spiritually. We are spiritually impoverished is what he's going to say. And some of you might be thinking, what does that mean though when you say that there's poverty of spirit? Well, I think simply put, just think about it for a minute. What is poverty? I mean, just, just think the simple definition, what is poverty? Here's what it is. It's lacking resources. You don't have the resources. So what does it mean when the Bible says that we have poverty of spirit or we're poor in spirit? Here's what it is. We don't have the resources. You don't have the resources. I don't have the resources. We don't have what it takes to put ourselves in a right relationship with God to earn our way or to somehow uh, make ourselves right with God. We don't have the resources to do that. We just don't have them within ourselves. That's the idea, I think, that we see here of being poor in spirit. I'll tell you something I thought was clarifying. So in the Greek language, so the New Testament was actually originally written in Greek, there's actually uh, a few different words that are used to talk about poor or poverty. And uh, the most common word that's used in the Greek language is actually not the word that Jesus used here. Jesus uses a very different word. So the most common word that was used for poverty is a word that was used to talk about kind of like the working poor. So if you think about like a lower class, people who don't have a lot of resources, but they still work and they still lose, that, that was one word that was used. That is not the word that Jesus uses. The word that Jesus uses is actually really interesting. It's this Greek word right here. It's the word patokos, which you don't need to remember that, but here's what it means. It literally means to crouch or cower like a beggar. And so it has the idea, not of the working poor, 
This is talking about the begging poor. And it's referring to those who are poor and helpless. It's abject poverty. It is utter helplessness and it's complete destitution. It's I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. This word was used to evoke a specific image, to cower or to, or to be face down like a beggar. So back in Jesus's time, it was common that beggars would take on this position, a very lowly position where basically they're saying, I'm completely dependent on you. I have absolutely no means of self-support. And so Jesus comes in and he says, what is our spiritual condition before God? And this is the picture he puts in front of us. He says, we're not the working poor, we're the begging poor. We have nothing. We we don't have two spiritual pennies to rub together to somehow make ourselves acceptable before God. D.A. Carson, who's a, a really phenomenal theologian, he said it this way, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. We don't have anything. We are bankrupt before God, spiritually speaking, And so to be poor in spirit, I think then, this is the the first mark, the first mark. It's the entry point into a relationship with God. You cannot enter into a proper relationship with God without first recognizing spiritual bankruptcy. Now, that might seem like a really simple idea, and you might understand that, but here's here's the problem. I think the problem is that for many of us, we do not naturally view our spiritual condition this way. I think naturally speaking, we don't automatically think of our spiritual condition as one in which we are in poverty. We have nothing to offer God. And can I just tell you, as I, was, as I was just thinking about Jesus's metaphor, you know, Jesus kind of uses the different classes in society to talk about spirituality. And just going with Jesus's metaphor, I actually thought about this. I think naturally for many of us, we don't think of ourselves as poor in spirit. I think naturally the way we tend to think of ourselves, if I'm just being honest, is a lot of times we think of ourselves as middle or upper class in spirit. Middle or upper class. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, if you think about it, there, there's a certain mentality that accompanies a middle to upper class mentality. Many of us in this room would fall in those categories. We're probably middle to upper class people. And, and what is it that characterizes a middle to upper class mentality? Well, there's a lot that you could say about it. There's probably more books on this than I even know. But I think we could probably say that there's at least three characteristics that we could agree upon that, that characterize the middle to upper class. And what would those be? Well, first off, I think that middle and upper class are characterized by a sense of earning, right? Middle upper class, we earn stuff. We're, we justify ourselves by what we do. And so we earn what we have. We work hard for the things we get. It's like, remember, you guys remember what LeBron James said about Akron and everyone resonated with it? He said, in Akron, he said, nothing is given, everything is what? No, you guys, I guess apparently you haven't heard that. Everything is earned, is what he said. And, and everyone in Akron said, yes and amen. We agree with you, LeBron James. And so earning is a, is a mentality. And I think because earning is one of those characteristics that oftentimes lead to a sense of entitlement, that there's entitlement. Well, I'm owed certain things. I deserve certain things because I worked hard for the things that I have, and that will lead to a state of self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody. And if I have a problem, if I got a problem, I'll solve it, right? Check out the beat when the DJ revolves. I couldn't. That's just anyone else, Ice Ice Baby. Just immediately, on the fly, I was like, that was Ice Ice Baby. So, but anyway, so th- these things. Now, let me just be very clear on what I'm not saying right now. Okay, so just to be clear, what I'm not saying is that earning a living or becoming a self-sufficient person in society is a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying blessed are those who live in their parents' basement till they're 40. That's not what I'm saying, all right? That's not it, okay? What I am saying is the problem is that sometimes we can take this mentality and we can begin to import it into the way we view ourselves spiritually. 
We can start to think of ourselves spiritually, not poor in spirit, but upper to middle class. You might be thinking, well, how do, you, how do I know if I'm middle to upper class in spirit? Well, here's how. How about this one? Do you approach your relationship with God with an earning mentality? Is that, is that how you think about, it, as it relates to the way you view God, do you think to yourself, if I do so many good things, if I go to church and have good attendance, and if I give enough whatever money or resources or time, and if I'm a fairly decent person, then I have earned God's favor. Then I have earned God's blessing. Then I have earned a spot so that I can be in God's kingdom. I think, I think if we have that mentality, it's an indication that we probably are not truly poor. We don't recognize our true spiritual condition, that we have nothing, we have nothing. And I think maybe another way we can uh, identify is, um, do we approach God with a sense of entitlement? And I think maybe a good question would be, do you find that you sometimes feel like God owes you stuff? Do you feel that way, that God owes you? Um, here's a question. Do you find that sometimes when God allows pain or allows discomfort or allows loss in your life, that your first, your first response is to get angry with God and to try to justify yourself? Does that happen? Where you're like, God, how could you let this happen? I, I did this, I did this, I did this, I never did this, I never did this, and look what you let happen. What is that exposing? I think it's exposing that maybe there is a middle or upper class spiritual mentality that we, we are entitled to certain things because God owes us, because we earn certain things from him. I think another way is we, we're marked with self-sufficiency. We don't recognize our need for God. Maybe for us, we don't pray very often. Why? Because we don't actually think we need him. Uh, maybe for us, we don't actually think we need other people. We don't need other Christians in our life. We can do it ourselves. I can follow Jesus on my own. I don't need other people to speak into my life. I don't need to speak in other people's lives. And I, I think all of those things are maybe, are maybe indications that we don't actually recognize our true spiritual condition before God. And what is our true spiritual condition? We are impoverished. We have absolutely nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And I'll be honest with you, as hard as this might, might, might sound to say, I think that maybe the common denominator be, be behind these postures is it really boils down to pride. I think it's pride. I think that's what it is. And I'll just tell you this. I think the reason that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is because poor in spirit is the opposite of proud. Um, pride is in so many ways the, the greatest hindrance that keeps us from God. In so many ways. I love what the Bible says. Look what it says in James. It's a very sobering verse. James 4, 6, he says, God opposes. That's a strong word. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. In other words, what this verse says is it says that pride in our heart is like God repellent. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and he shows favor to those who are humble, who are poor in spirit. I love this verse. This has always been so cool to me. Isaiah 57, God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. I love that. God's like, you wanna know where I'm at? I'm in the high and holy place. I'm in the high and holy, but look at this. He says, but I'm also in another place. And where is that? I'm with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell with those who are poor in spirit. I'm with you. I think that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they are with, because God is with them. God dwells with them. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about, I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but did you ever just stop and think, what do we actually have? What do we actually have if it wasn't for God? What do we have if not for God? I just started thinking about this and I thought, man, you know, the, the truth is I'm totally bankrupt. I have nothing. I have nothing. I just started to make a list and I, I could go on and on, but I'll just show you a few things I put on the list. I thought about this. You know, I didn't choose 
the time and place or the family in which I was born into. I had absolutely no, no say in that decision at all. I had nothing to do with the fact that I was born into this country, into this time, into the family in which I was born into with the opportunities that I had before me. I had absolutely no say in it. I had nothing to do with that. I, had, um, I, I did not give life to myself. I, I didn't have any choice or decision in that. As far as I remember, I just showed up. And honestly, I don't remember much about that either, which I actually praise God for. I don't remember that. But there's pictures of me when I was a baby. I don't know. I just showed up, and all of a sudden, I'm here. Had nothing to do with that. Um, I didn't choose my natural gifts, my natural abilities, or my natural intellectual capacity, right? For better or for worse, I had no say in that. I mean, sure, I can nurture those gifts, and I can grow those things, but I mean, I I didn't determine those. I, I wasn't the one who put those into place, right? I am not holding the earth in perfect proximity from the sun right now. Um, I am not making the earth spin, contrary to what I believe about myself sometimes. I have nothing to do with any of those things. It's all happening. I thought this was crazy. You guys ever just think about how wild this is? Right now, my heart is beating, and I'm not making that happen at all. I have nothing to do. There are so many things that are happening. Just think about this. This is such a weird thought. There are so many things that are happening in your body right now that are causing you to be that you're not even thinking about. Your heart is beating. Your pulse is going, right? Your pituitary gland is patooting. I don't even know. I don't even know what your pituitary gland does. But it's working. It's working. You're digesting your breakfast right now. That's all happening in, down here. So I don't even know what's in here. And I'm like, God is doing all of that. And, and I think when we actually stop and think about how proud we can be sometimes to say, I did this or it's by my effort, or whatever it is. We don't have anything. Every single breath we have is on loan from us, is on loan from God. And so I think the truth is, um, we bring nothing to God. We bring nothing to him but need. That's all we bring to him. And ironically, I think that's actually what Jesus is saying. Is he's saying, when you recognize that about yourself, you're actually in a blessed spot. You're actually in a good place. And I think the reason that Jesus starts here, maybe the, the, the most important reason that Jesus starts here is because I think Jesus is, is trying to help us understand that there's a, there's a common, I think, misconception that we can have. And many people can have this, and I think maybe even many of us who are here today might have this, is sometimes we approach Jesus and we approach Christianity as if it's something we can just add to our life. Like, I can just add that to my life. And so maybe it would go something like this. You might say, well, I wanna be a happy, I wanna be a fulfilled person. And I recognize that the happiest people on earth are people who tend to be religious. That seems to be statistically true. And so because of that, I'm gonna try it out. I just wanna try out some religion. I just wanna, I wanna, I wanna try out Christianity in the same way that a person tries out kickboxing or tries out woodworking. I just wanna add it to my, I wanna sprinkle a little bit of God onto my life and hope that it gets better. And I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, um, with all due respect, that is not how you come to the kingdom of God. You don't test drive the kingdom. You don't try it out. There's not a trial period to the kingdom. You don't sprinkle the God of the universe onto your life. That's not how you approach him. In order to approach him, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to recognize you're bankrupt. You need to be emptied in order that you can be filled. Peter Kreft said it really well. He's another commentator. He said, if we come to God with empty hands, he'll fill them. But if we come with full hands, he finds no place to put himself. It's in our beggary. It's in our receptivity. That's our hope. That's our hope. And I think what Jesus is gonna say here is that if you wanna be part of my kingdom, if you truly wanna find true abiding happiness, it begins here. 
It begins by recognizing your spiritual condition is that you are poor in spirit, you're bankrupt. And when that happens, it actually leads to the next thing. Now, what is the next beatitude? Well, that's what he says next. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we're poor in spirit, I believe that leads to this next thing. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, just to remind you what I said, these build on each other. And so there's a sequence. Because we're poor in spirit, a recognition of being poor in spirit should produce inside of us a certain emotion. And what is that emotion? What should create in us a certain type of mourning is what he says here. In other words, I'll put it this way. Mournfulness can be thought of as the emotional counterpart to being poor in spirit. There's a connection between these two things. Now, just to be super clear, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, I don't think what he's saying is simply happy are people who are sad. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying. Like, if you're sad about something today, you're happy. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. What is he talking about then? I think in the same way that he's talking about a poverty in spirit, I think he's talking about a sorrow that is within your spirit, is a spiritual sorrow. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, I actually think there's other places in the Bible that actually help clarify this a little bit. I think uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says it well. He says this. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So you notice what he says? There's a certain kind of sorrow. There's a certain kind of mourning that is spiritual. It's godly. It's a godly sorrow. And what does that sorrow do? It brings repentance. It, ca- it causes you to want to change. It, ca- it causes you to turn away from a certain lifestyle and turn to God. That's what it does, right? And some of you might be like, what does that mean exactly? So simply put, I think this is what he's talking about. I think to mourn, or godly sorrow, I think is a mourning over sin. That's what I think it is. I think it's a mourning over sin. Sin in the world, yes, sin in the world. But even more than that, I think it's sin in myself. I think when I recognize that I'm poor in spirit, that I'm bankrupt, and I have nothing that I can offer God, I think that what it produces in me is it causes me to grieve and it causes me to mourn my own brokenness and the sin that's within me. I think that's it. Maybe just to make it more clear. Um, so G.K. Chesterton, out of curiosity, have any of you ever heard of G.K. Chesterton before? Have you ever heard of this guy? Okay, brilliant mind. There's actually a picture of G.K. Chesterton. He's an interesting looking dude, isn't he? G.K. Chesterton. He actually was an incredibly, uh, incredibly great mind back in the early 20th century. He was in England and he was a follower of Jesus. And I actually thought this was kind of funny. So this is a, this is a complete side note to everything else I'm about to say. But uh, this week I was talking with um, our team and we were talking about G.K. Chesterton and Dan Miller, some of you guys know Dan, he's the student ministries guy. He goes, dude, he goes, G.K. Chesterton, he said, every time I see this picture, he said, I just think he looks so much like your driver's license picture. And um, I said to Dan, I said, you're right. I said, you're absolutely right. So I don't know if I've ever showed this to you guys before, but when I was in my 20s, um, I was kind of a goofball. In my, I'm still kind of a goofball, but in my 20s, I was even worse. And um, I had a group of friends, and we had, we had this competition to see who could, who could get away with the goofiest driver's license picture. And so I combed my hair all crazy, and I went to the thrift store, and I bought some glasses and some things. And I went to the DMV, and I got this picture taken. You guys want to see it real quick? Okay, so I kid you not, this was my legit driver's license for four years of my life. It's this right here. That's it. Yeah. That's real. That's true. You're like, that's not real. That's real. Four years of my life, this was my driver's license. So, so Dan was like, dude, you look like G.K. Chesterton. I'm like, I do. I'm right about that. Isn't that awesome? So, um, yeah. 
quick pastoral challenge to all of you. I want, I want one of you to one-up me. I want to see it. I want to see it. So, uh, so si- si- again, I, I, I'm totally digressing here. But when I had this license, um, I got pulled over three times when I got this license. <laughs> Two times, it didn't, it didn't help me. One time, though, one time I got pulled over and the cop said, license and registration. I said, yes, sir, I gave him my license. He looked at this. He saw that picture and he goes, is this real? And I go, I go yes, sir, it is. And he goes, this is too good. Get out of here. And he let me go. I was like, that's awesome. So, so I'm just saying, so what up, man? That's your pastor. Some of you are like, some of you guys are like, I was thinking about leaving this church before and this, this is done. So anyway, all right, <clears throat> this welcome laugh. So anyway, G.K. Chesterton, back to this. So G.K. Chesterton was this brilliant mind, and he was, in, he was in London, and the London Times was doing this article where basically they were trying to release an article that was getting all of the, the best and brilliant minds of their time to answer this one question. And the one question, what, what is the problem in the universe? And so they said, we want to get all the brilliant minds to say, basically, what's the biggest problem on Earth? And so all of them answered, and of course they, you know, these brilliant minds had these lengthy essays about the problem with the world is, is education, and the problem with the world is politics, and the problem with the world is all these kind of things. G.K. Chesterton, who by the way is a follower of Jesus, he wrote in, and his answer to what is the biggest problem in the world was simply these very simple words. He just said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that's what he wrote in. Now, what's he saying here? I'll tell you what I love so much. G.K. Chesterton's a follower of Jesus, which means that he's poor in spirit. He sees his need for God. And as a result of that, it causes him to mourn. To mourn over what? Sin in the world? Yes, but first and foremost, sin in himself. G.K. Chesterton's able to look into his own heart and say, look, the problem is not just out there. The problem is not just with ideologies and politics and education. And the problem isn't just with them people. Says the problem is with this person that's in here. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that before. If you've ever felt that deep conviction that there's something inside of me that's broken and you've grieved over it and you've been sorrowful over it. I can just tell you this. I know I feel that way. Not all the time, but a lot of time I feel that way. I'll, be, I'll just be honest with you guys. There are times that I just feel so frustrated and I feel so sorrowful when I look at the pride that's in my heart, that I just, I wish so much wasn't there. I just wish it wasn't there, but it continues to plague me. And that's only the pride I see. I know there's even layers and depths to my pride that I'm not even aware of, that I'm not even in tune with. And it, and it, and it makes me sorrowful, it makes me sad. I think for me, sometimes when I look into my heart, I see insecurity that hurts relationships, that, caught, that, that it causes me to not love people to the full extent that I should. I see lust, I see envy, I see hypocrisy. I see all of that alive and well in me. And let's be honest with you guys, there's times that I just, I just I'm like, man, I just wish it wasn't there. I wish it wasn't there. And I don't see it all the time, but I see it sometimes. And when I do, it makes me grieve. And it doesn't mean that I feel like I'm a worthless person. I don't think I am. I know I'm loved by God, but I see that there's a, a, I see there's a discrepancy between who I wanna be and who God wants me to be and who I am, and I realize I can't do anything about that and I so desperately need God to change me. And see, I think, I think this is a big part of what Jesus is saying here. I guess what he's talking about when he talks about the idea of being about mourning in spirit. I'm actually reminded in Luke 18, Jesus gave an awesome parable. Some of you might remember this. 
Jesus, uh, to, some, to some people who are confident in their own righteousness and they look down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. And so Jesus said, once upon a time, there was two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now, you might not know a whole bunch about the Bible, but the Pharisees were like the best of the best. They were the professional do-gooders. They were the most religiously elite. And then you have the tax collectors. The tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were viewed as the chief of sinners. So they went to pray at the temple. And Jesus says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he started to pray, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like those robbers and those evildoers and those adulterers out there. And I'm not like that tax collector, jerk. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. You see what he's doing when he prays? You see what he's doing? He is basically going to God and saying, God, look at how rich I am in spirit. Look at all my spiritual assets Man, I give a tenth of all I get. I fast twice a week. Man, I recycle. I carpool, right? I shop local. I do it all. And I'm not like those guys. They're the problem over there. You see what he's doing? He's listening to God. Here's my spiritual assets. This is why I am so accepted and these people aren't. But then Jesus pans the camera over the tax collector. Tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up at heaven. He wouldn't even look up. Remember what we talked about? bowed down and he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. What is he doing? He's poor in spirit. He's mourning. He's mourning. God, I need you. I need you to help me. And look what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who are humble or humble themselves will be Exalted. I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, what, what did the tax collector do? He was poor in spirit, and he mourned. And he didn't just mourn sin out there. He mourned sin in here. I'm the sinner. What did the Pharisee do? The Pharisee went in, and he was rich in spirit. Look at all these things I've done for God. And he didn't mourn. He rejoiced. Thank God that I'm not like all those other people that are out there. And Jesus said, he's further from the kingdom than the tax collector is. Uh, Dan Gregory, he's a campus pastor down in Norton. Some of you might know him. He's awesome. Pastor Dan, on one occasion, said something I thought was really striking. He said this. He said, my true happiness, our true happiness, is in direct proportion to our godly sorrow over our sin. And I think what he says there is actually exactly what Jesus says. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Now, that sounds paradoxical. Why is this person happy? Why would we be happy if we were people who had godly sorrow over our sin. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's because if we do feel this way, it leads to the next thing, which is what? Well, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, like I said, these are all connected. And what Jesus is gonna say is that we have to start by being poor in spirit. And when we recognize that we're spiritually bankrupt, what happens? It creates an inner condition. We mourn. We mourn over our sinfulness. And what happens when that happens? He says, you're in a blessed place. And the reason you're blessed is because now your heart has been cultivated and is ready to become meek, to become meek. Now, some of you are like, okay, so what is meekness? That's a word we don't use very often, but I gotta tell you, it's a cool word. The word meek is very cool. Sometimes we can get meekness confused with weakness because they sound similar, but that's a mistake. They are not the same thing. In fact, meekness and weakness are not even synonymous. They're not even in the same category. So what is meekness? All right, well, let me give you a definition. The word meek can be translated humble or gentle, and it actually means this. It is a power or strength that is surrendered. So meekness is not weakness. Meekness includes strength. It includes strength, but it is strength 
that is surrendered. That's what it is. So I thought this was kind of cool. The word meek in the first century was used of a bunch of different things. It's actually a really, really cool word. And a couple of the things it was used for is it was used of a horse. So if you think of a wild horse that was tamed, that horse would be called meek. And so what does that mean? It's power submitted is what it is. It's surrendered power. It also was used of medicine. So if you think about medicine, medicine can be extremely powerful. But if it is, if it is, uh, if it is tamed... And if it's surrendered into a certain dose, it can be very healing. Now, both of those things, a horse and medicine, if they are, if they are not tamed or if they are not you know, properly submitted, they can be extremely dangerous, right? A wild horse that bucks can be very dangerous. Medicine outside of its proper dose can be absolutely lethal. So what is Jesus saying then when he says, blessed are the meek? What is he talking about here? Well, here's what I believe he means. I think what he's saying is blessed are those who surrender control. Blessed are those who surrender control, who are surrendering of self-will. I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about blessing me. You know, I think that the idea here is it's one of saying, I am willing to surrender my self-will and I'm willing to surrender myself to God. And I'm willing to allow him to direct and control my life. Probably the best example of meekness in the entire Bible, it's gotta be Jesus Christ. You guys remember when he went to the cross? The guards came and arrested him and the disciples were trying to get Jesus to retaliate. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you guys, if I wanted to, I could call it on 10,000 angels right now. We get this done real quick. Was Jesus strong? Yes. But he said, but we're not doing it that way. Why? Because he was surrendered. He was surrendered to the will of his father. What is meekness? That's what meekness is. See, I think the opposite of meekness, I think the opposite of meekness is unbridled selfish ambition. It's just self-run wild. And what does it mean to be meek? It means that I bring myself to God and I submit myself to him. I open my life for him to guide and direct me. Nancy Lita Moss, she's an incredible author. She wrote a book called Brokenness. In her book, she talked about the difference between proud people and broken people. I thought what she said was good. She said, proud people claim rights and have a demanding spirit. The demanding spirit, just demand my way. But broken people yield their rights and they have a meek spirit. They have a meek spirit. She said, proud people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated for their efforts, but broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness and they're thrilled that God would just use them at all. She says this, proud people get wounded when others are promoted and they're overlooked, but broken people are eager for others to get the credit and they rejoice when others are lifted up. So there's a difference. There's a difference of your, you know, the condition of your heart when you're in a position of meekness. I think at the heart of meekness, it's really this, Proverbs chapter three, verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's meekness. I'm surrendering myself to God's will and to God's way. I'm giving myself over to him to lead me and to guide me and direct me. This is the opposite of what our culture says. Our culture says, trust yourself and doubt God. But the scriptures say, trust God and deny yourself. And paradoxically, it's only when we do that that we find true fulfillment and we find true happiness. We tend to think that true happiness is found in, in the freedom of self-expression and the scripture would say the opposite is true. True freedom is found when you're poor in spirit, you recognize that you're bankrupt before God and when you mourn, you mourn over your condition that you need to be changed and that you can't do it. And so as a result of that, you open up your heart and you invite Jesus to take, to take the reins of your life and to, and, to, and to be the one who leads you and guides you and directs you. And ask the band to come up, and, and as they do, 
I just wanna say real quick, if you're a person who's in here and maybe you're investigating Jesus here today, and you know, maybe you're trying to piece it all together spiritually, you're, you still have a lot of questions and all those things, but can I just say, maybe for you, even right now as we're talking about this, this is resonating with you. And there's a lot of things you don't know, but you do know this. You do know that today you would say that, yes, I am poor in spirit. You would say, I recognize that I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have anything to offer God. I do realize that about myself. And maybe for you, as a result of that, you mourn. Maybe you look at the discrepancy between who you are and who you wanna be, and you see that your own inability to somehow justify those two things. And can I just tell you, maybe you're even here and you're in a broken spot today. Maybe personally, you're in a broken spot. And maybe because of that, you feel like you're far. You're far from God and you're far from what he wants for you. And can I just tell you, I think the truth is you might be closer than you think. Because you see, the Bible's gonna tell us this. The Bible's gonna tell us that the way that you get to God is not that you have to clean up your life first. You don't have to get your act together and you don't have to go to church a certain amount of times and try to, try to become a better person and then be accepted by God. That is not how the kingdom of God works. Here's how it works. You come bankrupt. And you, come, and you come begging, and you come as you are. And I just wanna encourage you, if that's you today, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, if you've never, just like Austin said in his video, if you never put a stake in the ground and just said, I wanna surrender my life to Jesus, what's keeping you from doing that? Just do it today. Open your heart to him and invite him in. Don't be too proud to beg. Because I know when you come and you beg to him, when you cry out to him, you're gonna find that he is abundantly, lavishly, overwhelmingly generous. And he'll meet you where you are with grace and with mercy because he loves you and because he made you. Let me just also say, for those of us who follow Jesus, this isn't the entryway into the kingdom, not simply. This isn't where you start as a Christian, it is. This is the foundation of the Christian life. And so we always come back to this. The Christian life is built on this. We never leave this. We are poor in spirit. We recognize we need God. We mourn over sin in ourselves and sin in the world. And then we cry out to God that he would be the one who defines and he's the one that directs us. Because when we're poor in spirit, we'll be blessed. And why we'll be blessed? Because the kingdom of God is open to us. And when, and when we mourn, we're blessed. And why? Because we're gonna be comforted. And how are we gonna be comforted? Because Jesus came to forgive us of our sins and he came to make us new. And when we're meek, we're gonna be blessed. And why is that? Because we'll inherit the earth. And when will we inherit the earth? When King Jesus returns again, and when he reigns and he recreates heaven and earth, he will reign and we will reign with him. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for how much you love us that you've given us. Lord, you haven't left us in the dark in this world. You have really truly laid out for us the pathway to the fulfilled life, to the happy life, God. So we just wanna call out to you right now. We wanna recognize uh, that what you said is true. The true condition of our hearts is that we are all spiritually bankrupt. And so we need you, God, we need you. And so we wanna beg you for your mercy and for your grace, Lord. Lead us and guide us, change us, transform us. We rely on you for that. God, we mourn. We mourn not just about the brokenness we see in the world, which of course is sorrowful, God, that breaks our heart. But first and foremost, God, we mourn about the inadequacy in ourselves. We just recognize that we wanna be transformed and changed by you. And so God, we wanna to come to you with a spirit of meekness. We wanna to come to you and we wanna surrender self-will. We wanna invite you to guide and lead us that we be surrendered to your will and to your word and to your way. And God, as we worship and sing in these next moments, I pray you'd help us to cry out to you from our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.